I watch a lot of horror movies and TV, and I know I'm the horror guy with the horror TikTok and podcast and YouTube show, but it's not always horror that I'm watching. There are, believe it or not, more elements to my personality than just horror. Every year for my birthday, I go to a double feature in the theater with a meal in between. When I travel, I tend to spend every waking moment on the plane and in the hotel cramming in as many movies as I can. My wife and I blast through shows and films at a rate of probably 1,200 hours a year. That's about one-fifth of our waking lives. And honestly, this is probably a lowball estimate that doesn't factor in when I ride the exercise bike with my iPad or decide to watch something while I'm cooking. This is just the post-work, before-bedtime hobby. Still, even with all of this dedicated time to watching, I somehow struggle to get in more than 13 horror films per month. It's a lot of work to keep up with, and there are so many movies I haven't seen, especially from my favorite era of filmmaking, the late 80s, early 90s, where practical effects ruled the screen and brought physical manifestations to life that would haunt the dreams of Gen X and millennials for the rest of our lives. So I've been on a path this year to really invest a good chunk of my 17 hours per month of horror ingestion to exploring this time period. And that's exactly what we're doing today. So grab your headphones, turn out the lights, find a safe hiding place, and fall in to haunting season. Haunting Season is sponsored by Nightmare Fuel, the horror writing course that I took to improve my scary stories, and I can't stop talking about it. Guiding you through everything you need to know to develop and create amazing tales packed with fear and terror, Nightmare Fuel combines self-study with four weeks of intensive live tuition. The course also features a wealth of exclusive guidance from Rain Hall, gothic horror author and creator of the Writer's Craft Guidebook series. The course moves quickly and is jam-packed with information homework, worksheets, and live classes. But the great part is, you get to keep everything, including recordings of the live class, forever. As if that wasn't enough, when you take the Nightmare Fuel course, you'll also gain access to the AutoCrit writing and editing platform, complete with its own private member community, where you can chat, interact, get feedback on your writing, and join in live events with special guests. On the horror side, past guests have included David Haynes, Thana Nouveau, Joe Kaplan, Lee Murray, Gary McMahon, and Jeff Strand, to name a few. And there are many more to come. Overall, it's an incredible, value-packed experience for anyone looking to sink their teeth into the horror genre. In fact, here at Haunting Season, we actually source some of our stories from the Autocrit horror community. For example, Rise of Pukachin and The Cameraman Kills. Find dates for the next class and book your seat now at hauntingseason.com autocrit. Good evening, world, and welcome to Haunting Season. Tonight, we're talking all about movies, and I have a special guest with me, Molly. I've really been looking forward to having you on the show ever since we recorded an episode for Final Girl Friday about the Slumber Party Massacre and Prom Night. Welcome to Haunting Season. Oh, 
thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here. I've been looking forward to this too. So <laughs> Yes. Molly, I found you through TikTok, I think. Yes. <laughs> but you do so much more than that. Can you give people the rundown of who you are, what you do, how you got started, all that good stuff? I'm the host of a podcast, a horror movie a review and analysis podcast called Final Girl Friday. It started a couple of years ago just as an audio blog. It was a way for me to sort of get out all of my sort of geek feels about movies that I loved. I didn't really have like a horror family social circle here in town. And I don't know, I was living with someone who was really not into horror movies. So it was like, man, I need a, <laughs> I need an outlet for this. So I had an old, a crappy old microphone and a, a broken art easel that I turned into a microphone stand. And I just sat down, started posting my rambles about horror movies on Anchor. And then two years later, it turned into the podcast. I also have a TikTok, obviously, because that's where we met and a website called finalgirlfriday.net where I've been posting news and reviews. And it's becoming more of like a growing network of horror fans, which has been awesome. So it's pretty much me. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. You know, I'm a horror content creator, but I go off of excitement. I don't really ever know what's happening around me. Even when I'm watching a movie, I have no idea what's happening. I'm just enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to your podcast sometimes and there are so many things that you know about, so many cool things coming up. I'm like scrambling to find some paper and a pen to be like, oh, I need to hear about that game. I don't know what that is. And <laughs> yeah, you're just like so in the veins of the horror community. That makes me so happy. Yeah, no, I mean, that really more than anything is what Final Girl Friday has evolved into because that's my favorite thing about doing it. Like, yes, I love researching and putting together deep dives of horror films. It's so much fun for me. And I love reviewing films and just talking in depthly about the ones that I love. But the things that I really enjoy doing the most through Final Girl Friday is just connecting members of the horror family to one another, recommending new things, helping promote like short films and, and more independent projects, like shining lights on things that other people haven't heard of. Because I can't get enough horror content. I feel like a lot of other horror fans feel the same way. So it makes me happy that you say that because that's kind of the goal, you know? <laughs> It, it's like finding out about things like Bruce the musical, that musical that they're doing that's based on about Jaws. Yeah, about about the not just Jaws, but the ma it's a musical about the making of Jaws. <laughs> like I, I had never heard of that. No one that I knew had ever heard of that. It was like I, I felt like I struck gold when I found out about it. You know, and and I love being able to like kind of find those things. It's almost like searching for treasure. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. If I didn't love your show so much, I'd be like, oh yeah, what are some of those resources? But I'd rather people go listen to your show and find it out that way because it's more fun. Aww. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> you found out that I was fresh to the slasher genre, and that's what we ended up talking about on your show and how I ended up watching Slumber Party Massacre and Prom Night, both of which I'm a huge fan of now. So I have some updates for you since we last spoke. Ooh, I've seen three new slasher movies, and I'll review them one at a time, and we can go through them quickly before we get to the main meal of today. So the first one, I finally, I bit the bullet, and I saw Child's Play, the first Chucky movie, which is a huge accomplishment for me. Oh my God, congratulations. It was <laughs> really scary yeah <laughs> it holds up there's just something about like a toy and you know it has all the features of the toy and as it becomes more human and the animatronics get more advanced and then they start putting the suit on like little girls and having them run around in the background it's just like makes your skin crawl it was awesome <laughs> no that's so true i am really glad you finally saw it definitely glad that you like it and it does it, it holds up i i think i told you when you first mentioned that you hadn't seen the child's play franchise yet i think i may have posted a comment on one of your videos about it i i can't remember but I told you that the Child's Play franchise is one of the few horror franchises where, in my opinion, every installment in it is solid. Even Cult of Chucky, which was, I mean, kind of the, the least <laughs> spectacular of all of them, I think. They're all really good. And the first one really holds up. And it's also a lot funnier. It's a lot scarier and a lot funnier than I think people remember. Because, you know, we like to kind of say that horror franchises get 
get sillier as they go on. But Child's Play always had that humor and that, you know, that that creep factor. <laughs> I don't know, five or eight minutes into the movie where the first kill happens and she gets thrown out of the second story window. My jaw was just on the floor like, yeah. what am I about to get into here? <laughs> what did you think of Brad Dorif's iconic voice, the voice of Chucky? Oh, it reminded me of it reminded me of somebody else. Oh, yeah. But I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> but it felt familiar. It felt like, oh, I know this guy. You know, yeah, maybe Worm Tongue from the Lord of the Rings series, yeah, or maybe. you know, I guess <laughs> <laughs> he has such a distinct voice, and the voice of Chucky is just, I think, one of the most memorable voices in just the history of horror. Is he doing the TV show? He is, yeah, he is voicing Chucky for the show. That's exciting. A friend of mine was a writer on that, and that's kind of what kicked me into like really wanting to start the Child's Play series. Oh hell yeah! No, I'm very, very excited about that series. A lot more than I, I would have thought initially. I'm a little confused because like the IMDb credit for Brad. Dorif actually only credits him for one episode, but I mean, he's doing the voice of Chucky. I assume he'll be in more than that. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be great. And the writing already just from the trailer seems pretty great. So kudos to your friend. <laughs> so the second slasher movie I watched was Jeepers Creepers. Okay, wow. That kind of counts, right? One single guy going after a bunch of people. Yeah, what did you think of that one? <laughs> it was wild. <laughs> it was a equally a film that obviously from a different time, early 2000s, I think. I had feared it just because of the cover and the eye looking through that. And I thought it was going to be a Scarecrow movie. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. Just based off of that first image and then like a few things that you see in the trailer. But I was really impressed with the practical effects and like the hell dungeon with the people petrified on the walls. And there were some really cool elements to it. Yeah, I think that was initially why I saw Jeepers Creepers for the first time was because the cover art reminded me of the the story Harold from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, oh, cool. Creepy, creepy Scarecrow story. I like Jeepers Creepers. Unfortunately, you know, there's there's been quite a not I'm not trying to break the movie for you, but there's been quite a bit of controversy about the director oh, no. that has kind of sullied the films for me. It's not it's not it's not great. But separating the art from the artist, that first Jeepers Creepers is just a really fun, almost like late Gen X, early millennial kind of slasher film. I think it counts as a supernatural slasher, and it, it is fun to watch for sure. I'm really glad that you saw it. I try to remind myself that there are other people involved in the films, but I do want to do my due diligence and look up that story before before diving into Jeepers Creepers 2 if I ever get to that point. Right. And I completely agree with you. It's not just one person on the film. It's hundreds of people. So yeah, there were a lot of people involved in it. But yeah, it's just one of those things where, ugh, and I don't mean to bring that up. I'm sorry. It's just, ugh, I, I'm so sad about that because I used to really love the film and now I just kind of don't know how I feel about it. But Yeah, no, and it's important too. And I think my family, my wife is a huge fan of Harry Potter and, you know, we struggle with J.K. Rowling as well, but kind of where we land with it is like, okay, well, if we can find, you know, Harry Potter stuff in like a thrift store, that money isn't going to her. Oh, exactly. And we can still sort of enjoy it, you know? So that's what I kind of try and do with movies too. Is I'll find a copy in a thrift store and I'm like, haha, got it without giving you my money. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. Like the movie already exists, it's already out there. It doesn't belong to the director anymore, you know. And as long as you're not funding them directly, you can enjoy the film. You know, it's a piece of, of cinematic history, of horror history. And Jeepers Creepers, I think, is an important film for that time. Did you see Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? You know, <laughs> I didn't. I've listened to several podcasts that that sort of go through the whole film, and I've watched like the kill count and like I, you know, mm -hmm. I've seen a lot from it, but I I, I didn't watch it. Was it good? It was fine. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a fun kids movie. It reminded me of like Goosebumps or something. But the guy who's in pieces at the end of the movie and the girl who like absorbs the guy in the hallway, like the kill count is fun to watch because they did some great stuff with CGI that felt scary while, you know, avoiding making expensive practical effects. I don't know. For sure. And I, I really do commend what they did. Um, I love that they based all of the character designs on Stephen Gamel's original artwork. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love them for that because it broke my heart when they re-released the the, that book series with new artwork. And so I was just really glad that even after that, they they still stuck with Steven's art. And that's fantastic. I don't even really know why I didn't see it. I I, I just, I'm not a huge fan of CG, I guess, for one thing. And then also those, the, you know, those books were really precious to me as a kid. And I just kind of wanted to keep a memory of them the way that they are in my mind. Yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, I get a kick out of, like, like you said, like the Kill Count's fun to watch. And I hope that a younger generation discovers a love of horror through that film. I really hope that that happens. I think that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of thinking of it. The third official slasher movie that I saw was The New Candyman. Did you see that one? Ah, uh, no, that's too, oh too, I'm God, too, I'm over two. And I haven't seen The New Candyman yet, but only because the closest movie theater to me is very far away. Uh, our, our movie theater that was right around the corner from me shut down. Ugh. And I don't, I don't drive. So I just haven't been able to get out to the theater to see it yet, but I'm planning to go next week. That's my plan. Well, uh, <laughs> you'll have to let me know. I won't say a single thing <laughs> other than it is worth the drive. That's what I've heard. I got to tell you, I did not expect to hear such overwhelmingly positive things from all directions. Like I have heard nothing but good things thus far. So I'm really excited. All right. So I want to move on to the real meat of today's episode. I want to talk about your, fa- it's your favorite film. It is my favorite horror, horror film. F- yeah. Favorite horror favorite film. Horror film ever made definitely one of my top favorite films though so this is a film you have a lot of swag for you have cosplayed as the main character from this film often and it's a film that i heard about frequently in college and is held up among the ranks of american werewolf in london and the evil dead trilogy and yet i somehow never saw it until last night it's the modern well you know modern at the time retelling of a kind of frankenstein story following a mad scientist in his violent quest to unlock the key to death and immortality i'm talking of course about the 1980s horror classic reanimator yeah <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> boy <laughs> what a movie <laughs> that was really exciting hearing you describe it for some reason i'm so glad you finally saw it i need to just tell me all the things tell me tell me how you're feeling how do you feel <laughs> uh, it's magical i mean yeah. it's it's one of those movies where you are kind of all over the place of like one oh this is awesome and then like what the hell am i watching and then like is the acting bad or dated or is it amazing and then like oh are the (laughs) the effects are happening and they're like kooky and over the top but they're also scary at the same time Uh, just so many feelings and then you get to the last 30 minutes and it's just heart pumping intensity (laughs) straight through to the end so well said (laughs) so true (laughs) yes what was the first time you saw this movie so i first saw this film i was my first year in college which I, i was a little bit of a late bloomer there but I was 20, 21, I think, when I saw it for the first time, 20 or 21. And uh, it was a part of a double feature, Stuart Gordon double feature at a friend's house. It was that and From Beyond. And it, it just, it changed my, it really did change my entire life. Like, I know that it's, it sounds so hokey and like melodramatic, but I would not be hosting Final Girlfriend. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if I hadn't seen Reanimator. I fell head over heels in love with it. And through it, I fell head over heels in love with the horror genre. I had always appreciated horror films, but I didn't quite appreciate them in the same way or watch them in the same way. I also 
also fell in love with the films of Stuart Gordon, his work, and then that whole Stuart Gordon family, which of course includes Jeffrey Combs. He's the unrequited love of my life, my favorite actor. He's also the reason I pursued a career in voice acting, like why I felt brave enough to do that. It's like, seriously, I'm not getting reanimator changed my entire world. So like... <laughs> <laughs> why did it leave such a big mark? Was it because it was the first one that you saw like this? Or was it something specific about the movie that you saw yourself in? Kind of a combination of things. Growing up, I was a, a little obsessed with Frankenstein. I love the story of Frankenstein. This was really the first time that I had seen someone pay homage to it without trying to directly retell Mary Shelley's story. So that was interesting. I wasn't really quite aware of the potential nuance there. And of course, it's not just Frankenstein. It is also based very loosely on a Lovecraft short story, which I also read a lot growing up. So it was like kind of a combination of things that I had loved as a kid. So it kind of spoke to me on that level. But then getting to see it modernized and sort of the practical effects, I think, were probably the the very biggest thing for me. I watched a lot of trauma films in high school. I had an appreciation for gore and for that all-out visual spectacle of practical effects that can sometimes you know happen in trauma films. But this was very different. The special effects in in Reanimator were very different to me, um, and they really gave me a deeper appreciation for like the things that we do to create those visual effects, both for horror and for humor, and how you can accomplish both in the same breath. Like what happens to Dr. Gruber at the beginning of the film, that effect, which was a John Carl Beekler effect, which that was my first experience with him. It's equal parts hilarious and really hard to look at. I just hadn't experienced that much. And then, of course, you know, discovering Jeffrey Combs, his performance as Herbert West, it was just spectacular. I had seen him in a couple of films prior to that, like House on Haunted Hill and The Frighteners, but he is this character. And it, I just, I, I developed a very deep appreciation for performance art, you know, um, and everybody in it does a great job. It, you know, Barbara Crampton, Bruce Abbott, they all, David Gale, they do a wonderful job, but that's kind of the crux, like the bulk of the things that I really love about it. Oh, and the score. Huge fan of the score. <laughs> Can you talk about cosplaying Herbert West? Like, how did that start? So I started cosplaying Herbert West when I first joined. Are you, are you familiar with the Slasher? You are. You joined the Slasher community, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was right after I joined the Slasher community, a composer named, he, he works under the name Gory Rory, contacted me, reached out to me because he had been taking requests for film covers, like score covers that he wanted to do for his YouTube channel. And I said, hey, dude, please cover the score for Reanimator. It's my favorite piece of music ever made. So he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm going to cover this track. Would you be interested in maybe dressing up like Herbert West and taking you know, and I could use a picture of U.S. Herbert for the thumbnail for the, the oh, image. Awesome. Yeah. And I was like, sure, give me give me like a week. And I ordered everything that I needed. I went I went to Amazon, dropped some money, you know, put together like a kind of what I thought was sort of like a quick last minute Herbert West cosplay. It turned out to be like so much better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and and I I mean, I've dressed up, you know, for Halloween uh, dozens of times in my life, but I had never felt so comfortable in a costume in my life. And I'm like, oh, this is why people cosplay. I get it. I understand it now. Since then, I've gone on to, I've cosplayed several other Jeffrey Combs characters. And now that's just kind of become my thing is I, I just, I just cosplay characters that have been played by Jeffrey Combs. But it started for that little photo session for Gory Roy, who also, fun fact, became both my boyfriend and my podcast editor. Oh, wow. So <laughs> all in all, it was kind of a fun whirlwind of a time. Now I cosplay as Herbert all the time, mostly on TikTok and Instagram. I have a certain amount of jealousy right now that I'm trying to work through because as someone who <laughs> is bald and bearded and is not willing to shave their beard, uh, I have a, a very select few people who I can dress up as. When I was younger and I was clean shaven, I had hair down, beautiful locks in my shoulders. I used to dress up all the time for Halloween as like these big characters and I would do all my own costuming and everything. And I just haven't done that since I lost my hair. And I'm just realizing that now. Aww. <laughs> 
mean, I love the way that I look. I completely am comfortable in who I am. And I don't have a lot of opportunity to dress up anymore. But with haunting season becoming more of a thing and thinking of going to conferences when the world is safe, yeah, that'll be something to think about. Who can I play? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I mean, one of my absolute favorite, like, beardy characters in the entire world is Tyler Labine's character in Tucker and Dell versus Evil. And that would be a really fun one to cosplay. That's true. You know, you could get a little dirty, get a little bloody, put on the overalls, carry around a copy of that board game that he loved. You know, I don't actually know if that was a real board game, but (laughs) and you would wear a hat so it would cover up the hair. You could even have a little stuffed pit bull, you know, Jengers, his dog. Like, I think that would be a good cosplay. (laughs) I love that. For for a guy with a beard. Who wouldn't react positively to seeing that? Oh, because he's like one of the most lovable characters in the history of horror films. You know, he's so adorable. So like, and he's very recognizable too. That's great. And it keeps me from wearing a latex mask, which I just can't even imagine how people get through entire conferences with those big things on. Oh, God. I don't either. You know, Horror Hound Weekend just happened in Cincinnati over the weekend, and a bunch of my friends went to pictures, you know, and I'm, I'm not in Ohio anymore, so I just have to live vicariously through them. But the pictures that they were sending me were just, I mean, just cosplayer after cosplayer in full head to toe. How do they not die? Like, how do you not just <laughs> cease living from just overheating and suffocation? Like, I commend everyone who wears masks in their cosplays. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand it a little bit more now because of TikTok. I've followed a handful of people who make masks like that or who make like giant cosplay outfits. And it's fascinating to see how they work in cooling systems almost to their to their situation because they know that it's going to be hot. No, that's true. You have to kind of like, I, well, I remember I completely random side note, but I dressed up as Clifford the Big Red Dog once when I worked at a public library for a community event. Yeah, it was just me in a in a giant Clifford the Red Dog suit. <laughs> <laughs> it was for the children, okay? It had fans in it. Like, you know, I mean, it was a huge suit, but half the fans were broken. And uh, I could only stay in that thing for an hour. Oh. You really need a cooling system in those things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did a senior thesis with my friend, which was a zombie movie. And I was the first assistant director, but I got to be a zombie in the end. So for a whole day, I had blood in my beard and an eyeball yeah. hanging out. And, you know, all this stuff that was restricting my motion. And even just that was a lot for a full day. <laughs> yeah, God, that's great, though. That sounds like it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, kudos to the actors who do it for a living. So, getting back to Reanimator, knowing that, you know, it's been since 1985, we're going to include some spoilers here. Um, <laughs> can you walk us through some of your favorite parts of the movie? I absolutely love the relationship between Dan and Herbert. That would be my favorite thing about it. I Not just, you know, you've got Bruce Abbott and, and Jeffrey Combs playing so well off of one another, but also the way that the characters are written. In the original short story, the, the Lovecraft short story, the character of Dan Kane had no name. He really had no personality. There, He was just sort of relaying events to an audience. And then over time, he kind of becomes like an Igor figure. He grows to fear Herbert. I love that they took that character and gave him a name, a backstory, a life, a personality, and that instead of making him fear Herbert, it became more that he was sort of seduced into Herbert's world and then becomes very like annoyed by him, but also dependent on him. It's this very complex friendship. And also Herbert being kind of almost like a Spock-esque character, you know, or I mean, just at the very least, like valuing science above all else, to see him sort of develop this dependence on Dan. I don't know. I just love, I love the the bromance in, in the movie. 
movie. <laughs> yeah, and the moment it happens feels so real when they're in the basement and he's upset about the cat and yeah. Herbert's brought the cat back to life and they both have to like hunt down the evil thing that's in the basement, not knowing it's the cat and then having that realization and then bonding over it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite <laughs> scenes. Yeah. In such a, like a grotesque but like very truthful way. I don't know what it reminds me of from my life, but it reminds me of my life and like my friendships that I have with my guy friends. <laughs> have you, I mean, have you had to take out many cats, like evil undead cats in your day with your friends? No, but I, I mean, there has been, uh, there have been moments in my childhood when like a squirrel got into the house. Oh, right, of course. Yeah. Trying to capture it with a giant bucket or, mm-hmm. um, you know, a bird gets in the house <laughs> and you're trying to chase it out with a broom without hurting it. It had those vibes to me, except they're, of course, trying to kill the evil thing that is not supposed to be alive anymore. I love seeing them figure out how to improvise solutions to these problems that they cause. <laughs> but that moment when Herbert just sort of slumps back after it happens and he just sort of slumps down and he's cackling maniacally. You know, he's just in hysterics and the look on Dan's face when he's like, what have I gotten myself into? The other scene that sort of relates to Dan and Herbert that I love the most is after Megan's father is killed and Dan is Dan is just having a complete mental meltdown because of everything that's happened and Herbert is trying so desperately to get him to just get his crap together, you know, and help him get the Dean's body on the slab so that they can work on it. And when he realizes that's not going to happen, he goes and gets a blanket and covers Dan up with a blanket, <laughs> which is just the most precious thing. <laughs> Yeah, Herbert's arc is, it's so complex. I was really surprised by that because on the surface, it's bringing dead things to life and it's going to be spooky and scary and they're going to come and get you and then someone's going to die, probably everybody. And, you know, and like maybe you'll see boobs. You know, like you have this idea going into it like, oh yeah, it's an 80s horror movie. But really with Herbert, you get this arc of like, you're confused by him. You love him. You think he's evil. You realize he's a hero. It's so confusing and that makes it feel much more real. I love it. And and that's, you know, one of the other wonderful things about Reanimator. I love the character of Carl Hill as well, because I feel that Carl Hill, he's such a powerful villain in that he takes a character like Herbert West, who is introduced to us in a way as a villain. You know, when we first meet him, we're not really quite sure how we're supposed to feel about him. And throughout the story, he does very villainous things, or at least morally questionable and dangerous ones. But Carl Hill is so much more villainous. He is so much worse. His motivations are so much darker and sinister. It creates within Herbert a heroism. And and I think that that's brilliant. I think that's a brilliant bit of writing. David Gell's performance of Carl Hill, he brought such a sinister quality to him. You can feel the shift of power between them and the shift of good versus evil. It's visceral throughout the film. Yeah, and while it hits you right away with the dinner scene where she's coming to get picked up and he's like, why don't you guys study here? Let me raise my glass. May everyone be as enchanted when you come in the room, you know, whatever that weird, creepy toast is. And you would assume that his character would be very two dimensional throughout. But then you get like a literal transformation into this horrible creature. Yeah. Well, now, did you watch? OK, so which do you know which version of the film that you you watch? Did you watch just the, the regular version or did you watch the one where the original Carl Hill storyline had been restored? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I watched whatever's on Tubi. Was he a hypnotist? Okay, then you probably didn't see that. Did he have hypnotic powers in the version you saw? No. 
Okay. Yeah, there's a whole storyline with Dr. Hill where he actually, he's he's such a master of the human mind. Like, he's not just a great neurosurgeon. He's such a master of the human mind that he's basically able to psychically control minds. They took out all of the scenes where that's actually illustrated, but they left in some of the aftermath and some of the results of that. So, like, the character of Dean Halsey specifically, like, at that dinner scene and then, you know, a little bit later, the character of Dean Halsey, almost everything he does in the film, he is doing because Dr. Dr. Hill is literally controlling his mind. But you don't obviously get that from the version of the film that most people see because they removed all of the scenes that explain that. So Dean Halsey is kind of just an adversary. Uh. But in the original story, Dr. Hill was making him an adversary for the boys. He also does a little bit of a hypnosis thing on Megan, too. And he tries to do it on Herbert in that moment when he goes down and tries to blackmail Herbert. And he's like looking into his eyes and he's telling him, like, you know, you will do what I tell you to do. And I have a theory that Herbert is just so very much in control of himself that he was able to resist it. But I, I don't actually know for sure. But yeah, the original Dr. Hill story, he was a, he was a hypnotist. <laughs> is it on the Blu-ray? Yes. Yeah. The deleted scenes are on the Blu-ray. Okay. I got to <laughs> yeah. get the Blu-ray. The version that I have is like a special edition and it has those deleted scenes included. <laughs> it's pretty great. Like, I love that original story. It's, it's fine without it. It makes Dean Halsey a slightly more sympathetic character, though, if you know that he's not doing doing most of what he does like of his own volition. Well, I'm so happy to hear there's another reason to rewatch this other than yeah. <laughs> I just loved it. Last night I was talking to some friends after watching the new Malignant movie and I won't give anything away because it's only been out about a week at this point. But the movie, like most horror movies these days, uses a good deal of CGI. And since I had just seen Reanimator, I naturally had to bring up the headless Dr. Hill. Oh, yeah. There, I, 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 I'm speechless. <laughs> There are so many different angles and so many different probably ways that they had to build his head and manipulate it. There must have been 35 different ways they shot that head. And so it just felt like it was flowing around every situation seamlessly. Why can't we still make movies like this? I know. And you know that I, I think kind of going back to your question about like scary stories to tell in the dark. <laughs> I really think that's probably why I'm naturally resistant to seeing movies where they utilize a lot of CG. I'm not saying it's not a beautiful medium because it is. It can accomplish so much and it can be. It's so beautiful. It's art. And I get that. But like nothing, especially in horror, can do for me what Dr. Hill, headless Dr. Hill, walking around, carrying his own head, assaulting Megan Halsey with his own head, the head in the jar. The rumor is that they had, it was like about a dozen different methods of achieving the headlessness. That to me, yeah, it's 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 magic. It's absolute magic. My favorite is, is just the simplicity of him, his head being in the tray. Yeah. That's my favorite thing because it's just so simple, but it works so well. Even when it's just the simple Halloween trick of the head being in the middle of the body, mm -hmm. you're still just completely in love with it. Well, yeah, because they've reinforced it in so many different ways, you know, prior to that. If it had only ever just been that one effect there at the end, which is where my favorite line in the film comes in, by the way, is that discussion between he and Herbert when he says, you know, who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. <laughs> it's my <laughs> favorite line in the film, which is fun fact. Jeffrey Combs was always very disappointed, or at least not always, but he was very sad when the film was first screened because when people went to see it, they laughed so hard at the first part of that line, who's going to believe a talking head, that they laughed over the second part, get a job in a sideshow, which was his favorite part of the line. <laughs> <laughs> My point is that the conversation between them 
It's just a guy with his head in the middle of a, of a fake body. But it, it works so well because of that reinforcement that we've seen in so many other ways throughout the film. And then that conversation is so immersive. That, yeah, it's just great, man. It's magic. Like you said, it's a magical film. Okay, so here's the big question. Okay. So at the end, Herbert West is being wrapped up in tentacles and (laughs) all sorts of horrible things are happening. And then I finish the movie. I'm incredibly satisfied. And I mentioned I'm watching it on Tubi. And as the credits are rolling, it pops up with Bride of Reanimator. And he's in it. Everybody's in it. (laughs) (laughs) So Bruce Abbott, David Gale, and Jeffrey Combs all came back for Bride of Reanimator. And so the question is, is that a good thing? Yes, it absolutely is. I love the second film, in my opinion. um, I don't know if you have a Shutter subscription. I'm I'm not trying to like advertise. I do, yeah. Okay. Um, Joe Bob Briggs showed Bride of Reanimator for the last drive-in sometime during this last season. So it's it's right there. It's free. I highly recommend watching it. There's also a fantastic interview with Jeffrey Combs in the middle of it where he's just it's just his head on a television screen and it's adorable. <laughs> I actually like Bride of Reanimator almost as much as I enjoy the first film. Awesome. The only reason that I would put the first film over it is because it's the first one. The dynamic between Dan and Herbert is a little different. We get a very different side to Herbert in the second film, which I love. And then the bride, Kathleen Kinmont, I believe is the name of the woman who played her. The overall look and feel of the bride is fantastic. The special effects are crazy. Yeah, it's a good, good movie. So I highly recommend watching it. I would only recommend watching the third film, which is Beyond Reanimator. I would only recommend watching that one if you are a huge fan of Herbert West, because that's really the only thing I think that Beyond really has going for it. I don't mean to, I'm not trying to rag on the movie. I love it. I've seen it, you know, a hundred times. But what I love about Beyond Reanimator is that it was like 13 years later and Jeffrey Combs just showed up and just went right back into the role of Herbert, aged and prison hardened. And he's he's so good in that role. But the movie itself was a very different experience. And it, it, it doesn't feel quite the same as the first two. But yep, I recommend him. <laughs> well, so Molly, it's been so fun talking to you today. On your show last month, I told you that when I really click with someone, especially other content creators and podcasters like myself, I get this overwhelming desire to kill them in a story that I'm writing (laughs) and you practically begged me to do it so I'd like to invite you and the audience next week to come join me for a special story starring a character named Molly it's called Molly's Midnight Massacre oh I'm so excited I love the alliteration of that title that's that's fantastic thanks for killing me (laughs) all right so if listeners want more of Molly right now or at any point throughout the week where can people find your stuff Final Girl Friday, the podcast can be found pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts. Spotify, Apple, Pod, iTunes, all that. But its home is on anchor.fm. You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere at Final Girl Friday. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed being here. (laughs) Memento Mori is the premier oddities and curiosities shop located in Los Angeles. Visit us at 1507 Wilcox Avenue at Sunset Boulevard in the heart of Hollywood, Fridays through Sundays, 11 to 6 p.m. Or shop online at www.mementomori-la.com. Listeners, stay tuned at the end of the credits for how you can get more involved in Haunting Season. Haunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Gregg, and is a joint production of Believe Limited and Matt Geelan. Special thanks to our sponsors, Autocrit and Memento Mori LA, and of course to our very special guest, Molly Oblivion of the Final Girl Friday podcast. You can find a link to Molly's show below. Haunting Season is executive produced by Patrick James Lynch, as well as Ryan and Matt Geelan. Today's podcast was edited by Drama Del Rosario, featuring music made exclusively for the show by North Innsbruck. 
Our creative support comes from Cody Dugan, Jessica Richmond, Mel Forrest, and my wife, Courtney Barber. If you like our show, please leave a review. You can find show updates on Instagram, daily movie reviews, and horror talk on TikTok. And you can join the conversation yourself by getting involved on Hi-Ho, where I post weekly questions that you can respond to with video and audio that we work into the One Big Question segment at the end of every episode. That's it for our show today. And remember, we're more likely to survive if we stick together. I hope to see you next time. 